This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is neurodiversity at work. And joining us is Jess Meredith. Jess Meredith is a neurodiversity advocate, trainer and speaker and CEO of Differing Minds. She's a proud ADHDer and parent to wonderful neurodiverse children. She's on a mission to create inclusive environments for those with a neurological difference, such as ADHD, autism and dyslexia from schools to the workplace and beyond. Jess firmly believes that it, to create truly inclusive societies, we must accept and embrace our neurodiversities. She uses her lived experience and the power of storytelling to deliver unforgettable talks. Jess is a staunch advocate for reframing the narrative around neurodiversity. She has delivered talks and spoken on panels for Accenture, the Adeco Group, Capgemini, Coulter Partners and more. Jess's social enterprise, Differing Minds, supports organizations to be more neuro-inclusive through training, speaking, consulting, and coaching. Differing Minds also delivers lessons to primary school children about neurodiversity to firstly, improve the school environment for neurodivergent children, and secondly, to create the change needed more broadly in society by educating and empowering future generations. Jess, you're very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this chat with you. Yeah, and I loved that piece in your your bio where it is really about reframing the narrative about neurodiversity. So I'll start with the question, what is neurodiversity? If I am someone who has just heard this term for the first time, what might neurodiversity mean to me? It's a good question because I talk about it so much that it's sometimes easy to forget that it's a big part of my world, but sometimes people don't realise it's actually a big part of theirs as well. Because neurodiversity is essentially the difference in our brains, the, the difference in the way that our brains are wired and our neurology. So it was a term that was coined in the 90s by an Australian sociologist called Judy Singer who um, initially talked about it through the lens of um, being autistic and how she saw the world very differently. And that was kind of, you know, that combined with other thinking styles was neurodiverse. Um, But it's broadened in its concept. um, And it really talks about, yeah, the differences in the way that we think and specifically looks at differences such as, like you mentioned when in the introduction, People that are autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, dyscalculic, dyspraxic, um, have Tourette syndrome, lots of other differences as well. Um, But for me, a really important part of understanding neurodiversity is that 
neurodiversity encompasses all of us because it looks at people's brains who don't have those particular differences and that some would view as neurotypical so being neurodiverse is having a group of people that all think really really differently i i just think though this whole topic is is fascinating and for me growing up as a child there was obvious negative narratives around that or people were treated very differently in school even the language was used about remedial class and stuff like that and and thankfully the language has changed and what are the negative narratives then that people might still hold on to regarding employing people who are neurodivergent in the workplace what are the the the, the reframing that needs to happen or the current frame that is unhelpful yeah, I mean, this is such a this is the key part of the the problem, really, as it exists, because we all we are all living in a world in a neurotypical world. So a world that was typically developed um, with people without these differences in mind. And so therefore, when you grow up, you view that as the way that things are and the way that things should be and the norm, dare I say it. So in the workplace environment, we see the way that works for neurotypical people as the norm. And so the when you think about somebody who doesn't act in that way or needs some other ways to um, need differences in their environment in order to thrive, you think about that in a negative way because you see that as kind of different to or less than the norm. And it's really been, I guess, perpetuated by the stereotypes around some of these um, neurodivergent conditions. Um, if you think about um Autism and ADHD are very obvious examples to use. When you think about somebody who's autistic, people often think about, you don't think about it in a positive way until I think you know someone who's neuro, who's autistic um, or you have a really close connection to someone who's autistic. But before this happened to me, my daughter's autistic. Um, before I had her, I um, unfortunately had the same negative view that many people do around being autistic because that's what I'd grown up with. You think that people don't have social skills um, and that that in itself is a bad thing. You think that they are, you know, often um, not as intelligent and that's frankly not true. And so I think because these stereotypes exist in people's heads in the workplace, you just assume that you just want to, to kind of have people in the workplace that think like you. It's that awful phrase everyone says, great minds think alike. And it's just so untrue. It's because we've kind of grown up and got used to a world in which we think, we want all of the people to think the same and conform to a certain way of being. And if you sit outside of that, then that's not going to work for us. So from my understanding, then we tend to stereotype uh, different uh, neurodiversity. So and from my understanding, it's a bit like a spectrum because sometimes you can have ADHD and dyspraxia, like sometimes they come in pairs or sometimes... Um, it could be on a spectrum where you have your high functioning on autism, isn't it? That you have a very high social functioning skill. So a lot of people may not notice that you're autistic. Is Am I right in saying that or could you expand yes. on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So a couple of things in that. You're absolutely right. So people talk about care occurrence. So it's actually, I think it's very common, if not more common to have, um, to be multiply neurodivergent. So to have, uh, to be autistic and ADHD for example as it is to just have one of those differences and so then what that means is people can kind of it can it it can work for people 
in a really different way. So there's a saying, you know, once you've met one neurodivergent person, you've met one neurodivergent person because they're all really, really different. And like you say, it operates on a spectrum. Um, and to your point about um, the spec, so one of the things with the spectrum, just to address something you said about high functioning is people typically think of the, um, or have historically thought about the spectrum as being linear. So you go from being not autistic, for example, all the way through to like really autistic. And what the autistic community um, and a lot of other professionals are now saying to us is that actually isn't the way that it is. So you're either on the spectrum or you're not. So the spectrum isn't actually linear, it's kind of spherical or circular. So once you're on that spectrum, you are autistic, but the way that you present as an autistic person or the things that you find challenging and the things that you're really good at can be entirely different from somebody else who's autistic. And that's what the spectrum really relates to, as opposed to the kind of difference between a neurotypical and a neurodivergent person. People always say all the time, when you tell someone you're autistic or you have an autistic child, with all of the best intentions, people say, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. And what they mean by that is they're coming from a really good place and they're trying to say, it's okay, don't worry, we're all the same. But what they're actually doing is almost kind of dismissing the challenges that those people face as a result from being autistic, but also kind of dismissing the fact that they can bring some amazing things because they think so differently. Um, and what we're actually seeing now is that people feel very strongly in the autistic community that you are not, we're not all a little bit autistic. You either are autistic or you're not. And the reason I mentioned that is because it relates to also the terms low and high functioning that people have often used, but that actually the autistic community feel very broadly, the autistic community will feel very strongly that those aren't great terms to use because what you're doing when you're talking about high and low functioning is you're comparing it to a neurotypical person. So you're saying you can function kind of more like a neurotypical person. So one is one point around that is that you don't necessarily understand what goes on um, behind closed doors or all of the time. Yeah. Um, and so to you, someone that may seem high functioning actually is only when they're presenting to you and masking, which is kind of covering up how they're actually feeling. Yeah. So um, we have a we have a, a director at Differing Minds who's autistic and she always says, you know, people would typically say to her, you're high functioning. And she says, you don't see me when I'm at home. You just see me when I'm operating in the work environment where I can hold everything together. And I've actually set myself up in a way where I'm working in an environment that works for me but actually you don't see all of the times that I'm really struggling. Um, and so when you think about the other side of that, when the opposite of high functioning is low functioning, which is obviously not a great thing to say about somebody, it can be kind of quite a derogatory term. And often when people say low functioning, they may need a lot of support in some ways, but they may actually be highly intelligent, but they might communicate in a different way, for example. So we mm. typically think people communicate by speaking, but a lot of autistic people are non-speaking and can communicate amazingly via, you know, technology. Um, and so it's that's one of the things I feel very strongly about when I'm talking about reframing the narrative. It's about really understanding how much we view things through a neurotypical lens um, and through a neurotypical world, if that makes sense. That is so helpful, isn't it? Amazing how these narratives get around and where people are well-intentioned, they're actually causing, there's an impact there to what they're saying. And it, this is the whole thing about that awareness then. So you were saying there that about, about that director that she's thriving, if we were to call it that word then, in a, the how the work environment is set up for her. 
So what I'm thinking is, is that if I'm in the workplace, then what are the things that I need to look out for that might be unhelpful for people or how can we be aware of that? So is there some sort of, if I'm curious about my coworker and I'm kind of going, I wonder what's going on there. You know, why do they seem a little bit off or something like that? If they're struggling a certain way, what are the things in the workplace that could be, oh, that's, um, that's something that wouldn't be helpful. Like I'm, I'm just thinking about like a photocopier one time or with the lights going off and the noises, I'm just thinking, yeah. I'm sure that would have been, you know, a, a complete aggravator for someone. Absolutely. I think so. The the short answer to this is that you really need to understand each individual to know because it can be very, very different. Yeah. And I think that's when people tend to get a little bit worried about accommodations in the workplace because kind of what you're saying is, oh, you could have to do anything to accommodate people. But actually what this comes down to is really speaking to people and, you know, asking them questions like, what can I do to help you to perform at your best? Or is there anything that you need to change in this work environment that's bothering you just to open up the conversation? Um, But typically some of the things to think about are, um, you're absolutely right around kind of sensory overload. So, um, I feel very passionately about people understanding sensory processing because I think it's really misunderstood or just not very well understood. And it can be so life changing for people. So um, people who are, are neurodivergent often have difficulties with sensory processing. And that can mean both that they get overstimulated by sensory input, but they can also be quite understimulated by sensory input. So you may have some people who find bright lights, loud noises, busy spaces really difficult. So a lot of the recommendations would be if it works for a neurodivergent person in the workplace, suggest that they, you know, dim the lights for them slightly or um, sit them in an area where they're not kind of in a thoroughfare, for example, or um, ask people not to play music or if people do want to play music, play it through headphones, things like that. Um, but also you can find neurodivergent people who are understimulated by sensors. So, for example, people um, like me need to move quite a lot. So you may find that people need to have quite a lot of movement breaks or might want to have a standing desk or might to sit, want to sit on a chair um, on like an exercise ball instead of a chair or you get lots of chairs that move around, things like that. Um, and there's we're, in, we're living in a great time where there's so many kind of things that we can do um, and equipment that we can use that can really start to help. But I think normalizing those conversations and normalizing those changes is what can really help people because often they don't want to ask and they certainly don't want to see be seen as the different person. They just want it to be, you know, something that that everybody sees as as accepted within the workplace. And I like how how you see that they don't want to be see the one that is different. So you have made a really good video uh, from differing minds about the role reversal to say, actually, we designed a building that was made for uh, people who are neurodivergent. And then we hired neurotypicals. Can you tell us a little bit about that video? I think it's a fascinating uh, video. Oh, well, thank you so much. um, Yeah, I'm very proud of that video. And we actually got the idea off a video that we found that had a similar story, but around wheelchair users. Um, and so what we did was we took it and put, put it through the kind of neurodiversity lens. So, it, yeah, it's a video about um, an office being developed um, and run by autist, only autistic people. And so they set it up in the way that would work for them. 
Um, so they had it as a very calm space. They had, had kind of dimmed lights. It was quite quiet. Um, and then in terms of how they interacted with each other, they spoke very directly to each other. There was no real small talk. Um, and then they got new people that came into that office who were neurotypical people. And those neurotypical people found it very difficult to operate in that environment. And the neurodivergent people thought they were very strange because they couldn't understand why they wanted to go out and socialize in loud, busy venues and couldn't understand why they wanted to wear uncomfortable clothes just because they looked nice. And they couldn't understand why um, they wanted to make small talk about the weather and sports results all the time. And, you know, as the video goes, it says that the neuro divergent people got very worried about the neurotypical people and were trying to help them solve problems by kind of creating groups to figure out how to support them and to raise money to try to support them and then it ends by saying that the, the neurotypical people realized in the end that there was actually nothing really wrong with them um so yeah I would love for people to check it out because it is it's it, it really comes to life when you see that in the video but you're right in that it's such an important point because when we talk about accommodations or adjustments, it's almost the wrong terminology, but at the moment we don't really have better terminology for it. Um, and it exists because most workplaces are set up for neurotypical people. But when I mentioned one of a few of the accommodations um, that you could consider, one of the things I talked about was if somebody doesn't like a lot of loud noise, for example, I said you could ask people to play their music through their headphones so people don't hear them. So that's an adjustment that a neurotypical person is making. Whereas what people will often say is we should get some noise cancelling headphones for the autistic person or the neurodivergent person. Mm. So in, in that way, they're saying we're going to continue to exist how we like to exist and you just need to change some things about yourself. But there are all, almost always ways of turning it around to say, actually, we'll make the change and you can operate in the way that you want to in this environment. Um, so it's it's not always possible and it's very difficult to kind of challenge what we think of as the norm, but it's so useful to have for people to have that at the front of their mind. So they don't naturally think the neurodivergent person has to change or they need to be accommodated for. It really is about meeting in the middle or, or arguably more towards the neurotypical side because neurodivergent people have been almost excluded from the conversation for such a long time. And it really is that inclusion piece. So, again, isn't that a great way to look at it that, you know, um, sometimes that we're even by saying accommodating people to say, actually, we're still singling people out in a way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So how about we, we, we change it then to say, listen, if there were, if I was someone with autism um, and I wanted a more inclusive environment what are the things that people typically wouldn't know about people with autism? So I'll give you an example. I was speaking to someone recently uh, on this and they had mentioned that someone with autism they, that they were working with could hear a light bulb flicker three rooms down the corridor. And, you know, it, it drove them to great distraction and great upset. So can you tell me a little bit about creating inclusive cultures then? So, so let's start off with, with autism then. So with autism then, what are the, the way that we can be more inclusive 
and I'm being careful with my language here. <laughs> and you don't have to be. I should always say that whenever yeah. I do talks and whenever I talk about this, for me, when I'm engaging in conversations about this, it's about kind of everyone learning together I'm in no way judging people about what language mm. they use it, the only time I think people should judge people for the language that they use is if they've quite clearly been told that an autistic person likes this language and then they continue to use different language with that autistic yeah. person much like with pronouns that's when we can start to get a little bit defensive and difficult about it yeah but when we're having an open conversation I don't think anyone when it, when speaking to me should never be worried about what language that they use yeah thank um, you for that oh you're welcome um so with yeah with autistic people what you mentioned is is very true and is related to the senses that I was talking about before and that they're just very very heightened and um I talk about um sensory processing in terms of cups which I got this analogy somewhere I forget but for every sense that we have you have to imagine someone has a metaphorical cup and some people have really small cups for a sense and some people have really big cups for a sense and for us to be regulated your cup needs to be full so say I have a very um, small cup for sound it means that my cup fills up really quickly and then anything over that I'm dysregulated and I'm overwhelmed and I can't handle it but on the other side of it imagine I have a really big cup for um so for me one of our senses is called proprioception so it's um a movement sense so i i may have a very big cup for proprioception which means that i only feel regulated if i get a lot of um, proprioceptive input so a lot of movement a lot of the movement sense which is why i need to move around all of the time my daughter has this very much so she has to be on the go all the time we go climbing um she was recommended things like horse riding which she doesn't really like but you know we need to do that all the time because people have to have full cups to feel at peace really in the world yeah um, and so your point about hearing that is when someone's senses are just so heightened and they're so, you know, sensitive to it. Um, and I think understanding people's sensory profiles, which is what it's called, is, is really important because it can make such a big difference to them. And then another thing that I think is really, really misunderstood, well, I know is misunderstood about autistic people, is that autistic people lack empathy. Um, people always say this all the time. And actually, it's very complex um, and a lot of autistic people can be very empathetic, but they may be showing that empathy in a way that a neurotypical person doesn't understand. So they assume because you're not showing empathy in the way that I would show empathy, that you're not empathetic. And it's just not true. It's called the double empathy problem, um, which I think is really interesting. And I'm glad people are exploring it more and more um, because it's just not it's also used in diagnostic criteria, which is really wrong to do because that isn't always the case. So I think understanding that a lot of the stereotypes that we think are not always true. So what we talk about social skills is another really good one for autistic people. Most people talk about autistic people not having social skills. And again, what they mean is they don't have neurotypical social skills. A lot of autistic people can be very sociable, can have lots of friends, can really enjoy going out, seeing friends, being around people. Not all of them. Some of them don't, but some of them do. So I think it's just so important, not just for autistic people, but for all neurodivergent people to not make assumptions just in a way that you wouldn't make an assumption about a neurotypical person. I don't meet a neurotypical person and assume that they're going to be like the last neurotypical person I met. I met. And that's yeah. essentially what what you should think, too, about neurodivergent people. 
So I want to go back to the, the social skills and more specifically to double empathy. So, you know, I know there's different ways that people show affection. For example, it might be um, I made you dinner or, you know, I wrote you a card or I gave you a hug or something like that. But when you're talking about that double empathy and I suppose uh, the stereotypes with social skills, what's that double empathy or how might people... Um, demonstrate empathy so so one I think interesting example that people talk to me about a lot is um a lot of autistic people um have special interests or focused interests so they're really interested in a particular topic um and one of the ways that autistic people say that they kind of share with people or that they are trying to um connect with people is by sharing everything they know about their special interests with that person so I think some people call it info dumping so if you're on the receiving end you can as a neurotypical person who doesn't understand it or a non-autistic person you can think why on earth is this person telling me about all of this stuff that I am not interested in I can't get a word in edgeways and they have just been going on for a really long time whereas actually what the autistic person is thinking is oh I'm going to do this really nice thing. I care about this person. I'm going to share all of this amazing knowledge I have about something that I think is so amazing. And I'm going to share it all with them right now. And you can then see from that example how people can be on wildly different sides of the fence and not understanding each other um, and making then the wrong assumptions about what that means. That is that is fascinating. And it's great to get that reframed. There's another way of looking at this to say that's actually a sign of saying I really care about you or really interested in you. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it, it's there's so many things like that. And I think that is it, that's why reframing is just so important and that we should always not challenge what we're assuming about a certain situation and what we're feeling. And I, I still do it. You know, I'm not I don't think I'm autistic. I, when I had my ADHD diagnosis, I the psychiatrist said you're actually displaying quite a lot of autistic traits. Um, so you might want to consider that, which was quite a, a shock to me because I didn't really relate to being autistic. But it's very interesting when you kind of think about the stereotype of being autistic. Um, but anyway, I you know sometimes I I, I don't I don't think I'm autistic, and so I. I think I am still really trying to learn how to understand other autistic people, my daughter in general. And it is a, it's a, an ongoing learning journey that I don't think anyone ever accomplishes. So I think it's really important for us to just recognize that and actually try try and do it and not just think oh, I don't understand that person and always think, am I am I reading this situation in the way that this person would have intended it to be? And then it's. Just on autism in particular, it shows up in so many different ways. So when you go back to the sensory processing, then when you think about, uh, just to remind our listeners, there's very many different sense, senses that we have. So it could be, for example, a fabric in the office that would yes. be very unhelpful, or it could be colors or a smell or something visual you know, there's loads of different things that could, from a sensory point of view, that may be unhelpful or... Yeah, I mean, there's so much to sensory processing and all of our different senses. And you're right, there is smells. Smells is something I've always had, actually. And I have um, a very small cup for the smell sense. And um, things like strong perfumes, I've never been able to handle. Um, 
And uh, that can really affect people in the workplace because you have a lot of people that really like scents. And so that can make it very difficult. And it's it's not just, this is what I think people need to understand about sensory processing. It's not just, oh, I, I don't really like that smell or I wouldn't choose to be around it. It's so much more than that and can impact you in such a huge way that you're then sort of pouring all your effort into trying to get past the fact that you feel so uncomfortable and in some cases in pain that you can't then concentrate on your work. So you have smell is 100% one. Sound, I think, is the really obvious one. Um, then you have bright lights, as you said, um, that can really impact people. Um, you, the movement senses as well uh, that I talked about. So um, there are two movement senses, vestibular and proprioception. And proprioception I talked about before, which is um, the movement sense that kind of tells you where your body is in space. So if I move my arm, I know where my arm is. I push up against a wall. I can feel that wall kind of pushing back. And then vestibular is where your body is in relation to the earth. So it's your balance sense. So it's kind of how balanced you are. And if you don't have that, someone described this to me, they said, if someone's not getting the right amount of vestibular input for them, it can feel like they're sitting on a balance, uh, an exercise ball, but they're not allowed to put their feet on the ground. So you're constantly trying to balance yourself and therefore you can't concentrate on what you're actually supposed to be doing. So there's all of that to consider. Um, and then, uh, as you said, things like clothing. I think people think that clothing can be, you know, you can be a little bit insensitive to clothing, but it's, again, it's so much more than that. It can be actual physical pain. Um, and it's it's not something that we, sh I feel quite strongly about things like, you know, um, clothing in the workplace and being people being made to wear certain clothing um, is, is can be extremely detrimental to neurodivergent and autistic people when it's really quite unnecessary because all they really want to do is wear clothes that are going to be comfortable, which mean they can just focus on their work and, and get it done. And it can be so challenging if they need to wear certain, I know someone that left a big, an autistic person that left um, one of the big four because they had to wear suits and they just couldn't, and they just couldn't operate in that environment. And that just seems just so terrible that you lose such a talent just because of a clothing issue and you're right it's not just clothing it's maybe about some fabrics that are on the sofas or particular feel of the sofas or or things like that and it can be it can be so much but the other thing that I think is really important to understand is some of these things are really easily fixed so it can feel sometimes when you're working in the workplace you want to be inclusive and then someone like, like me comes along and says oh but you might have to change this and that and consider this and that and there's all these senses and it's all really complex it's not that complex you just need to ask the individuals who are working there and then cater for them um, and some of the things will be easier to do than others but you will find that there are some really easy things that you can do that can make a big big difference and that is the thing then it's, it's people talk about talent retention but if you're a person that's neurodivergent and you've got something that's working for you and then there's the risk of going to somewhere else where it's going to be yeah literally an assault on your senses you're like absolutely well i'm a you know i i i'm i'm thriving here why do I, why would i move yeah exactly exactly and, and, and just a, a quick one so you talked about the the, the physical things about that that if you're off feeling off balance, then I'm just curious, how would you regulate if you're feeling off balance? Like, I'm just curious about when you, you said that. So if people are feel like they're sitting on a, a ball or something like that, 
how how much how do you regulate yourself if you if that's going on so it it for the vestibular sense it's um often because people um, either get too much or not enough of vestibular input so if you're not getting enough vestibular input which is normally what it is you would need to get more of that which is more of the physical sense so kind yeah. of similar to the things i talked about when i talked about proprioception so for people in the workplace it would literally be kind of moving around um you know getting yourself up having a movement break doing things like um pushing against a wall so your hands getting the feedback from the wall and getting that input through your body can be really yeah. helpful um, things like uh, pushing against resistance bands to get more of that input um, and so then you're filling up your cup and then hopefully your cup becomes full and then you can feel regulated a final one then just on the the senses then um is, is some people just don't like being hugged or that physical embrace at the workplace i could see by your facial reaction kind of going oh yeah that's a big one, <laughs> that's it, a big it, one. yeah tell us tell us that because you know there's certain cultures or something like that happens a lot or you know so T tell me a little bit about that. What yeah, so I think this this is definitely something um, that people can feel uncomfortable with, neurodivergent people more broadly. Uh, but for a few different reasons, I think. So one, you have some people who don't like um, to be hugged, um, especially... So again, it, this has turned into a sensory, sensory episode yeah. of your podcast. But um, as you could tell, I find it fascinating. Um, so some people can find hugs difficult because they don't like um, soft touch. Yeah. They might be better with a really firm hug, but some people will give you a firm hug and some people will give you a light hug and you don't always know what you're going to get. So it can make people, people really nervous and they, they just don't, don't like it. Um, so, and a lot of people who don't like light touch will respond very, very well to firm touch. And so it's just about understanding, I guess, what that person is. But also beyond just the sensory part of it, it, you know, some autistic people just don't like being hugged by people who they are not really, really close to. So they may, may be comfortable with very close family members, um, but not necessarily people in the workplace. Also, it can vary day to day. So it really depends on, you know, how people are feeling at that time. If they're really dysregulated for other reasons, like they've kind of got lots of things going on in their head, they may be a bit stressed about something, maybe they haven't slept particularly well, it would probably make them less likely to, to want to have a hug. Um, but also, again, like I said before, it's more than want, don't want. It can have a really detrimental impact on people if you kind of push, push past that and make them feel uncomfortable. Um, so I, I think one of the it, it's difficult when you're a hugger and when you're used to doing things like that. But if you do find that that's the kind of thing that you you, you want to do with people that, you know, and people that you um, work with, just asking people um, and it doesn't have to be sometimes it can be a little bit difficult if it's kind of more spontaneous. But if you know you're going to see somebody and you're not sure how to greet them, an autistic person would be delighted if you sent them a message and said, oh, looking forward to seeing you later. Let me know if you're in the mood for a hug or not. I'm very happy with either. You know, it's something so simple to do and then they can respond and just tell you. And then it's something like that for autistic people is brilliant because they're probably going into that um, situation not knowing what to expect. And autistic people really like to know what to expect. So they really like everything to be very, very super clear and not go into any ambiguous situations. So that's almost part of the problem. So perhaps if a lot of people knew they were going to get a hug, that's that's better. I understand what's going to happen. I'm going to go in, I'm going to get a hug and then we're going to carry on with whatever it was. That can be so much better than just going into the unknown. 
So soft hug or hard hug or exactly whatever. oh yeah. you do want a hug great do you want a soft one or a hard one <laughs> yeah love that uh, so so let's go back to here so the workplace itself so of an inclusive workplace what are the benefits to an organization to have an, an, an inclusive neurodiverse workforce so many so beyond for me the obvious which is why would you not want people who think so differently to you? It, we all know that there are loads and loads of studies now out there that prove that um, diverse sets of people outperform non-diverse sets of people. And I think if that can be the case for people from different backgrounds, um, different race, different gender, that has absolutely got to be the case for people whose brains are actually different. Because you want those people to come in and talk th things through from a different perspective so for me that's the real basic but beyond that we know that neurodivergent people can problem solve in a way that neurotypical people on their own can't necessarily because getting those groups of different people together that bring these different ideas and that can share them can help you solve problems that you otherwise may not may not be able to they can also spot problems um, that you may not be able to um, as a neurotypical person because they tend to spot irregularities. Um, they can see patterns to then solve those problems in a way that neurotypical people people can't. Not all neurotypical people. And we're massively generalizing here. And I certainly never want it to become a neurotypical versus neurodivergent person. Yeah. For me, the point is that you want to create neurodiverse teams. And by neurodiverse, I mean a combination of both. So you want everybody in the mix. Um, and, you know, neurodivergent people, as I mentioned before, can often have special interests, focused interests. And so it means that and they, they can also have something called hyper focus, which does really what it says on the tin. And so if you get those people operating in an environment where they're comfortable in a job that they enjoy with a topic that they find interesting, they can become an expert so quickly um, and can be a, of huge value to an organization. So I, I, I'm just curious about that hyper-focus then. So uh, sometimes people get pigeonholed, you know, into a certain like a software engineer because they can be so hyper-focused in coding or could they be in accounts or a technical role or something to do with engineering or something like that, that it requires that or something science related. Is there certain roles that if I was listening in that I would be more suited to, or am I, I suppose, limiting myself to say, actually, I can do anything I want. Just I need to have the environment to, to uh, I suppose, allow me to thrive. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the latter, but I think the important thing to note is that not all environments right now are set up for neurodivergent people to thrive. So there will yeah. be some cases where something like you just mentioned. So, you know, um, in engineering, for example, where, you know, in, in lots of technical roles where you can kind of operate on your own, um, you may be able to do a lot of it remotely and set yourself up in a way that does work for you. Um, but I would say neurodivergent people shouldn't limit themselves at all. And actually, they have many, many different skills. So we think stereotypically about autistic people being really good at coding, for example, um, or really good at maths. Um, which they often are, but they are also often really creative, um, you know, very artistic, um, can think outside the box in other ways. We also have a, 
um, ADHDers who over-index and dyslexic people actually who over-index in entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, there's current debate going on about whether that's because they can't operate in um, other workplaces. So they, they have no choice but to go it on their own. But that's also coupled with the fact that they actually have the kind of brains that allow them to do that and make it happen. Um, also, dyslexic people typically can be very creative. Um, so I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's a case of limiting at all. And I think it's all about finding out what you enjoy in the same way that a neurotypical person would. But what, in fact, one thing we haven't talked about is spiky profiles. Um, so spiky profiles is a, a concept which looks at the different profiles compared, a neurodivergent person compared to a neurotypical person. And what it kind of says is if you mapped on a chart all of the things that you kind of were good at and not so good at and um, what that looked like, you may have a neurotypical person who's kind of quite good at some things, not so good at other things, quite good at some things, other, but a bit of a bumpy line across a graph. Whereas in a neurodivergent person's profile, you'll probably find that they're really, really good at some things, struggle a lot with other things, really good at some things, struggle a lot with other things. So they have a much more spiky profile. So what you want to do is recognize what those things are that you're really, really good at as a neurodivergent person, and then try and find an environment that will support you with those things that you find challenging, because then you can offer all that value at the top, and then the organization benefits from all of that as well. So that's what I would put, pour more energy into thinking about in terms of where a neurodivergent person wants to go, rather than, I guess, kind of a specific role or industry. And often we talk about confidence on this podcast and sometimes we don't often realize that are we actually playing to our strengths so i'd like to reassure some of our listeners here that if they have autism or dyslexia or dyscalculia or adhd or dyspraxia or, or any of those um uh neurodiversities that there are strengths to all of these so would it be okay if we could just run through some of the strengths to each one of these would that be okay Jess yeah absolutely I, I, because I, th I just think some people and I've I've had this before where they have this imposter syndrome with dyslexia like I, I've coached people um before with all of these various different things and they will slowly reveal to me then to say actually I had because you were asking before how do you know all this stuff and I was like well you know people would reveal it <laughs> exactly. in a coaching session and I'm like okay I find out more about this and this is how I've uh, try to educate myself and it's yeah. great learning from you here today so the strengths then of would say will we start which one would you like to start with oh I don't I don't mind at all and I think it you're absolutely right that I've talked a lot just a, a bit of a note I've talked a lot about being autistic a bit about ADHD and dyslexic but it's so much broader than that so what we'll cover in yeah. this podcast We'll go nowhere near to talk about, I don't want anyone listening to this to think, oh, you haven't included me in that neurodivergent population. Yeah. It's purely because it's impossible to do in an hour. Of course. Um, and there will be some generalizations about um, things yeah. that people who are neurodivergent are really good at. And it's funny because you mentioned Tourette's and I'd for, that wasn't even my in my sphere of, yeah. of consciousness um, when you talked about that. So I'm glad you said that. So the strengths then, what are the, if I have autism, what are the kind of strengths that I have? So if I was to reassure myself and to play to my strengths and know my manager kind of going, listen, if you play to my strengths here, I'm really going to thrive in this organization or this team. Yeah. So again, this is obviously typically and doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, but 
often autistic people are very, very analytical and really great logical thinkers. Um, mm. So they can apply that mindset to almost anything that they do in a way that other people can't. Um, and they also have an amazing ability to retain information um, and retain very detailed information as well. Sometimes that is related to their focused interests that I talked about um, or a particular technical ability, but also sometimes it's down to actually a memory and photographic memory. I remember being with an autistic person once and we were coming out of, um, we were filming in a studio and we came out of the studio and we'd locked the door and we were supposed to look at the code before we came out. And we've, we'd all taken pictures on our phones, but we'd done it so quickly that one of the people that we were with said, oh no, I remember this um, and tried to put the code in, but he didn't remember and he kept getting it wrong. Before anyone got their phone out, um, this autistic person just said, reeled the code off like it was nothing. And everyone was like, what and then put it in and that was exactly it and she said well I, I have a photographic memory like I just needed to look at that once and now I know it and it's not going to leave my memory so a lot of autistic people benefit from that as well um, and uh, autistic people one of the things I don't think talk is talked about enough that they are also very kind of loyal reliable employees when mm. you put them in the um, right environment actually retention can be really really high it's why retention rates are actually really strong in employee um, autism at work programs um, where you specifically kind of recruit autistic people um, into an environment that works for them with a group of other autistic people and so I think that should be really celebrated and autistic people should feel that if they have found themselves leaving jobs that's not down to their own a characteristic of theirs that's probably down to the work environment and everyone should realize that actually it's it's a good thing about autistic people okay that's that's great so dyslexia then so dyslexia then yes. comes up in different ways where um you might jumble up letters or, or words or people might have reading difficulties or learning difficulties am i am i right Yes, yeah. so you know, yeah. um, find things like filling in forms difficult. Um, some people find reading more difficult, some people find writing more difficult, things like that. So, what are the strengths uh, of a person with dyslexia? Yes, so again, typically, um, as I said, they over index in entrepreneurship, and I think that largely comes down to um, innovation skills, um, mm. being very creative, being very inventive. Um, and being able to bring all of that together and think strategically um, about solving a problem. Um, and also they're very, very good at, I mentioned this more broadly before, at uh, spotting patterns in something. Yeah. So think what a dyslexic person sometimes um, struggles with in terms of maybe reading, they more than make up for in terms of their visual thinking and their ability to visualize things. And that can be a, a huge strength um, in the workplace. So, Say, for example, I'm I'm a senior executive and I just found out, you know, I have uh, dyslexia and I'm going through all these things. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense from school and college and all that and different exams I would have done. So how might how might I is there any kind of workarounds there for people with dyslexia? Like I know, for example, in colleges that might have a pen that records at the same time and different things like that it records the audio at the same time is there stuff that we can do that might be more helpful for us you know especially if we've got lots of admin in a role yeah I'm, I'm just saying oh that's a nightmare for people yeah. like how do we how do we get over that challenge so I think um 
much like there's some specific things that you can do as a dyslexic person. So there's lots mm. of technology now. I think we live in an amazing time where there's lots of tech that can support us. Um, so lots of software that you can get installed on your computers that can help. But I think one of the most important things to realize is that you, you want to try and work with people um, or operate with people kind of in your personal life as well that complement the skills that you have. And so I talk a lot about creating exceptional teams, not exceptional individuals. And by that, I mean, you want to surround yourselves with the people that are good at the things that you find hard and that are not so good at the things that you find really easy and are really, really good at. And so then combined, you're just an amazing team rather than try and battle through something that you find exceptionally difficult and that your brain is simply not wired to do and you pour all of your energy into that you just will never be as successful and your business would never be as successful as if you spent all your energy in the things that you're really really good at and so i, I think, think that's one of the things sorry go on that, i think that's a great point uh, and thanks for that jess because i was working with somebody who dyscalculia and every, i hope i i pronounce it okay and when it came to budgets and numbers and the numbers were jumbled up for this person, it was, you know, something that was so challenging for that person. And they were a C-suite leader, yeah. you know, which is great that it didn't hold them back, but they found workarounds that they surrounded themselves with people to do, uh, to help them with this. So again, it is that team approach, isn't it? A hundred percent. And that's, I I wouldn't have been able to get differing minds to the place it's at right now if I hadn't surrounded myself with the people that do the things really well that my ADHD doesn't allow me to do. So mm. I am terrible <laughs> at the admin side of things and, you know, very simple things um, for other people, seemingly very simple things I find very difficult to do, manage my own calendar deal with paperwork organize my files um but i have someone who does that for me and they like doing that they really love being in an organizational role in something that's very kind of admin heavy um that's massively playing to their strengths and then one of the other things i'm just not not that good at is focus <laughs> i have lots of ideas i have loads of ideas and i want to do them all at the same time and i work with someone amazing who is brilliant talking me through a process to get me to realize what are the things that I should do in the next six months and then we focus on that and then you know we bank the other ideas and then we go back to them later and then we reprioritize but without those two people around me I couldn't operate at the level that I do and so it's so important and the first thing to do is recognize what your strengths are and what the things you find more challenging are and then create your teams around that. ADHD then your strengths then are lots of ideas creative creativity what else might those strengths be um so yes they're my personal ones um but they do they are the same for lots of people with adhd we're also very good at taking calculated risks we can be impulsive but in the right environment well if we put that into the right put that in the right way it can be very successful and i think again why a lot of adhd people start their own businesses because we don't find some of those big challenges and those big decisions as difficult and stressful as as people who don't have ADHD. Um, we have typically um, a very good ability to multitask. So whilst focus is sometimes an issue, 
for some of us, we're able to handle lots of different things all at the same time and not get stressed by that because our brain actually thrives in an environment where we've got lots of things happening and far less in an environment where we have to do one thing, end that project and move on to the next. And that can be really beneficial to lots of different areas of work. So say, for example, we're working on a project together, Jess, okay? And I know that you have to deliver something for me so I can do my part of the project. So yeah. if I was to work with you, then like what's really helpful for me to do? Is it that I remind you a week out or the day before or, you know, you know, because I've worked with people who have ADHD sometimes and it's like, I will tell you five minutes beforehand or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's not helpful for me. I need more time than that to, to change what we're doing or whatever. So what would be helpful if we were to work on a project or in a team for me to, to know? I think it's such a good question. And I saw a brilliant thing on social media the other day that kind of looks at this around deadlines and saying, you know, your typical ADHD brain, you first get your deadline and you think it's ages away. Um, and so you don't do anything with it. And then about a week out, you suddenly remember you've got that deadline and you go into hyper focus mode, but you just write down a plan and you then you feel so much better because you've got your plan. And then about five minutes before the deadline, you suddenly realize you haven't done it and you've got to do all of the work. And that's basically what it's like. But I think if someone's working with me, um, it's about it would be about regular reminders um, and check ins um, to make sure that it's not just you need to do this and then I guess a reminder a day before because I would need more within that and for me personally putting things in my calendar that tell me when I need to, to have achieved parts of it and break it down into chunks is enormously helpful because just having sometimes people with ADHD just having that end goal without the sort of steps to get there can be really challenging but if someone helps them kind of figure out what those steps are in between they can find it much more manageable to get going. Okay, and just on that then, so for you, a bit of structure and reminders of that structure and what the little milestones or deadlines to get there, it's breaking down. It's a bit like, so you don't get overwhelmed, is it? Or I'm just trying to understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and that can be a big problem. Okay. And is it with technology now, is it the structure of having stuff on OneNote or, you know, Dropbox or stuff like that that it's ready to go you can access it but it's a very clear step-by-step -step structure to keep you on track is that what my understanding is yeah yeah exactly so um I, again not everybody will like to work in that way but that is what really works for me I think for a lot of other people with ADHD um my particular preference at the moment is to organize everything through Trello I don't know if you use Trello yeah um but I I have a um my own I have lots of different boards on Trello and I have week by week of what I need to do. And so when that also helps with my focus because I have lots of ideas and if I can see that actually I have captured that idea and I'm going to do it in the third week of February and that's fine rather than what I do before I was operating in this structured way, I just had this huge, you know, we have a huge to-do list yeah. and you don't, you've got some that have got deadlines, some that don't really have deadlines and it's all just seems like a mesh. And so I would often look at it and think, oh, I just can't do any of it. That's it. I'm done. Whereas with this week by week, every week on a Sunday evening before I start work the next day, I will make sure that I've kind of updated my Trello board and I know exactly what I need to do that week. And it helps massively. Thank you so much for that. It's really helpful. 
So dyspraxia, I'm curious about dyspraxia because I was saying beforehand, I know about this. I actually worked, did a bit of work with dyspraxia a couple of years ago doing facilitation. So a big shout out to, to Harry there. So dyspraxia is about motor skills, isn't it? So yes. how might that show up in the, the workplace? I'm, yeah, I'm curious. So dyspraxia um, is, uh, it's also called developmental coordination disorder. So it is around coordination and it can affect um, fine and gross motor skills. So in the work, place it, it can sometimes impact people in that they find it difficult to um, use pens for example so actually again technology is m really really helpful for dyspraxic people um, and computers are just much more easier to navigate than pen to paper and things like that but then when you know that perhaps if you're in meetings where you're asking people to take notes and they would have to take notes in pen and paper you might just not want to ask the dyspraxic person to do that because they might find that very very challenging um, and it you know it they also may be impacted um, by some of the office equipment as well. So, you know, again, things like chairs and things like that. Some dyspraxic people will find certain chairs much easier to use and be comfortable with than others. So it's definitely something to bear in mind. Um, but dyspraxia can have kind of um, there are amazing strengths to being dyspraxic um, and they are a lot of them are some of the things that we've already talked about because there's big crossovers with people who who are neurodivergent and brains that work differently um, but specifically with dyspraxic people they can typically be really really good at the kind of big picture thinking like bold thinking um, and things like that which again is is such an amazing quality to bring into a workplace that reminds me of something that I encountered by accident. So I was working, as I said, with um, uh, this is another organization, NALA, the National Adult Literacy Agency. And we were talking about um, uh, dyslexia and I was helping people tell their story publicly or through the media, through radio interviews or TV interviews. So we're doing um, workshops around that. And I had brought in big sheets of yellow paper to do mind maps. All right. So again, yeah. at least they had images. It was easier to to tell their story in a structured manner. But then they told me, oh, yeah, choose yellow paper. Thanks for accommodating us. And I had a clue. And apparently yellow paper, yeah. it's yeah, easier it's for people to read mm -hmm. and to look from yellow paper. And that's what I noticed. It's it's like I just picked this up because it was the first A3 yellow paper. <laughs> I was in a rush I out the door. I hope you took the credit for it. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was very honest, if I'm honest. I was like, thank you for educating me. I didn't know that. I'm very honest. Um, and. It's small changes like that, isn't it? That will make such mm. a big difference. It's a bit like we were talking about uh, pronouns earlier on. You know, it's those little things that are going to go, thank you for accommodating us. Um, so it's colors, exactly. it's different things like that. Um, yeah. And I'm just curious then, because something you had said earlier on was, you know, you had found out um, uh, through your child's diagnosis that you might be autistic, even though you're saying, well, well, maybe not. And this is what happens. A lot of people themselves is to find out their children have it and then they get tested themselves and then it, it emerges. What goes, what's the journey that, that people go on? I suppose people need to be kind to themselves a little bit when they, they find out this is like, there's a struggle all the way along and why am I disorganized and all this? And then suddenly goes, oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. 
and there's there's quite the range of emotions that come with it so I I knew my daughter was different when I had my son because when yeah. I had she's my eldest and when I had my first child you have no idea what what to expect and you think what you're dealing with is what everyone's dealing with um and but I I realized she was different when I had my son and um so we've been on a an amazing but very challenging journey to get her diagnosed um mm. which is a whole episode in its own right um and even before she was diagnosed actually I started I, I originally thought she had ADHD which she probably still does but she's quite little so she's not diagnosed yet and then we moved to her being autistic but as I was researching ADHD I couldn't help think about a lot of things that related to me in fact first I thought oh there's a lot of this relates to my my mother a lot relates to my mother and then I was thinking if this relates to my mother and my daughter and I'm sitting in the middle of that (laughs) what does that mean for me and then I started to think ah yeah there is a lot here actually and my best friend from school got diagnosed and she said you have to go through the assessment process like you know we are the same person and you know you definitely have ADHD and I because at that point I'd already started differing minds and I was a huge advocate for the positives around neurodiversity I actually felt really comfortable with it whereas a lot of people find it quite difficult to come to terms with I'd kind of already done that part Um, and so I had my ADHD assessment and got diagnosed with combined type ADHD which means I have a bo- a bit of inattentive and a bit of hyperactive impulsive. In fact, I have a lot of inattentive and a bit of hyperactive impulsive. But it was in that when they said, we think, you know, you do display quite a lot of autistic traits. And that one has been more challenging for me because I think because of the stereotype of autism, I think there is still a much more negative stereotype when it comes to autism than when it comes to ADHD. Mm. People feel... Um, yeah less likely to want to address I think that part of them if that if that exists for me I don't I still don't really know um but it is it's hard and comes with a wave of emotions because it also then part of me when I was diagnosed with ADHD thought this is amazing I I understand myself so much better now and I'm so open about it as I'm sure you can tell I feel much more able to say to people oh I you know I'm doing a a webinar tomorrow for example and I had a, a catch up today and they said is there anything that you need us to do and I said um because of having ADHD I'm not going to be able to monitor the chat whilst I'm doing the presentation because I'll I'll look at a message and it will completely throw me off and he said oh that's fine I'll just do that for you and we'll do the Q&A at the end or midway through depending Mm. on how I facilitate it because I won't I won't have to worry about it and I just think back to before my ADHD diagnosis I would never have had the confidence to say to somebody because I didn't know it was ADHD, I wouldn't have been able to say, oh, I'll get really distracted by the Q&A going on. I would have just tried to do all of it. And so it is amazing being able to label that. And that's why I think when people say labels are really damaging, for me, they haven't been at all. It's been very powerful. Um, And I think it's, it's just been really positive experience. Having said that, you are then exposed to all the people who have their own views about what being neurodivergent is like and who will say to you, oh, no, you're not. I know I still have very close family members who say to me, I don't understand how you can have ADHD. You did really well at school. You have a math degree. How can that even be? Um, and it's because they don't understand what ADHD is really like. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a, a bit of a roller coaster. But for me, it has been largely positive. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that brings the question then, there's a cultural piece there that we really have to inform people because, and, and, and educate people about those labels. Like, I think it's still spoken about nearly in hushed tones. I think this person, you know, or my child or, you know, and, and what would you say to parents that might be concerned about their children if they're they're listening in here, especially about that labels thing and, you know, um, being open about it like you are to say, listen, I need to accommodate that because I'm sure they might say, well, they're fearful of school they're bullying or when they're older, you know, um, being excluded or even you know, afraid to, whatever you do, don't mention in the job interview, you know, that type yeah. of stuff. Like, I'm sure these are, are fears. Oh, they they absolutely are. And I hear it all the time that parents, even some parents have got children who are diagnosed with autistic and don't tell them. Um, that happens a lot. Um, or yeah. they don't want to get them diagnosed because they're worried about what it will mean. And I think before I go on about the positive which I certainly will do in a second it is worth noting that I totally recognize what happens when someone gets diagnosed as autistic that label does stay with them for the rest of their life and unfortunately there are negative things that come with that so for example you um, cannot get permanent citizenship in Australia as an autistic person who did who wasn't born there for example um, which is just a, an incredibly outdated awful law but they exist so I understand that you have to have those things in mind However, I always point people to an amazing study done by someone called Chris Bonello, who goes under the pseudonym Autistic Not Weird. So if you want to look up his work, it's autisticnotweird.com. And he is brilliant. He's autistic and he is either a current or an ex-teacher. And he released a report last year based on um, some research, a survey he did with about 11,000 people. And it was a repeat of something he did four years previously. And some of the questions he asks in that, I think, answer the questions about kind of whether labelling a child as autistic is the right thing. And one of the things he asked them was, um, do you like being autistic? And I can't remember the exact stats, but something like 88% of people said they were sort of indifferent to it or liked it or they either indifferent, agreed or strongly agreed. So that tells me that the negative perception of being autistic comes from non-autistic people. It doesn't come from autistic people and non-autistic people really need to understand that. He also asked, um, did you know you were different from an early age? And again, almost exactly the same. I think it was even higher, maybe 89% of people said strongly agree or agree. So you have people who know they're different from an early age at school, let's say, um, and who like being the way that they are mm. and then thirdly he asked them did um, getting your autism diagnosis have a positive impact and again I think it was 90% of people were either indifferent or said strongly agree or agree and so that just tells me that we have children who know they are different whether we label it or not and by labeling it you're giving them the identity that they deserve and they no longer think I am a broken neurotypical person. They understand that they are a perfectly formed autistic person and they see the world in a different way. And so I feel really strongly that children should be able to know who they are. And I think as families and as parents, all we can do is support that and then support kind of the positive conversation around neurodiversity 
um, and specifically being autistic, I think, because it is the one with the most negative connotations. And I think that is the best thing that we can do for these children and, and kind of adults who now are miss and late diagnosed, which is also another problem. Yeah, thank you for much for for sharing those insights. Really fascinating. So that's autistic, not weird. Is that the the yes, person's autistic, name? Autisticnotweird.com. Yeah, excellent. I, I have another quick question. So then you were you were talking, and then I was talking about dyslexia, and I'm going to go. Okay, so say for example, I have hidden my dyslexia in the workplace. And suddenly after 10 years, I suddenly tell people, well, I got diagnosed 12 years ago, by the way, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I did my MBA or whatever. What, what advice would you give to that person? Because I'm sure they might have fears that say, actually, this is, they might affect a promotion or managing a team or somebody from my team would take advantage or bully me or I don't know, whatever the, the fears that my people yeah. might have. What would you say to someone about maybe revealing that to, to their workplace? So, first of all, I would say um, only do it if you feel really comfortable doing it. If you feel yeah. like you're in a safe space and you're happy to and the time is right for you, then 100% do it. Don't yeah. feel like you have to in any yeah. situation because I know a lot of people who are neurodivergent who now will probably never disclose again because of such negative reactions that they've had in the past. So that will exist for some people. So yeah. I am all about disclosure and sharing, but it has to feel right for you. And if you're going to, my suggestion to people is to prepare yourself with a really good understanding of, as we talked about before, your own strengths and the things that you find more challenging. Because what will inevitably happen, even if you're in a safe space with someone who understands it to a reasonable degree they will probably ask you well I think they should ask you what does that mean for you how does it impact you what support can I give you and I think the onus has to be on part on the individual to know to advocate for themselves and to know what they're asking for but then part on the manager or the colleague or the teams at work to be able to then help them um, with that so the best thing that you can do is really prepare yourself so prepare yourself with your own skills and the things as a result of you being dyslexic, um, but also more broadly, some of the real positives around people who are dyslexic. And, you know, you can start to talk. There are lots of famous dyslexic people, famous neurodivergent people who have achieved amazing things. And it's really worth having those in the back of your mind that you can start to talk about to make sure that it's really being framed in a positive way. Final question, because you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I, I said about this, at the, you know, before we recorded the podcast. So I like to always ask the curveball question. This is the devil's advocate that's listening in. So what about the argument that we might be over accommodating, for example, poor behavior versus neurodivergent behavior? It's kind of like, you know, it's a gray area to navigate there. How do I go? Someone's just not being very nice versus somebody that, you know, um, is struggling to fill their cup. Yeah. So I think you, you make the first point really that we need to be really, really clear on the distinction between poor performance and being neurodivergent. And often those conversations get really muddled because people can sometimes assume that neurodivergent people will underperform um, or will be underperforming in certain environments and so I think it's really important 
and the other thing I should say actually before I go on to what I think people should do is to recognize that just because someone's neurodivergent doesn't mean they're going to be an amazing performer just because someone's neurodivergent doesn't mean they're going to be a really lovely person they are we are human just like the rest of you know the neurotypical mm. population so I think that's also really important to understand there's a real balance between being positive about it and being completely unrealistic we're not saying all neurodivergent people are going to transform your business and you know be the loveliest people you've ever known because it's simply simply not true however um if you are managing someone who is performing poorly and you also know that they're neurodivergent as you said the question then becomes how do i know what is poor performance because they're genuinely not right for this role or poor performance because they're not in the right environment and we're not supporting them and i think it's really important to understand what that poor performance looks like and whether we are viewing it through a neurotypical lens or not so do we think that they're performing badly because they're not socializing with people in the office for example i'm using some really obvious examples to kind of bring it to life do we think that they're performing badly because they're not they're not concentrating because they're not making eye contact in meetings those kind of things are just not poor performance and things that are related to people being neurodivergent. Um, and so I think that's really important to understand. The second thing is I get asked a lot, what is, how can I get my neurodivergent people will say to me, how can I get my manager to understand this is something I need um, versus like just something that I'm just being a bit awkward about. And I always say that this comes down to the difference between things being equal and things being fair, which is what we actually teach our primary school children when we do the lesson. And it's it's just the equality versus equity debate. So a lot of people, because neurodivergence is an invisible disability, people will think that people are asking for too much and they won't really understand what they're actually facing. But if you had a wheelchair user and you started challenging them in the same way, people would think you were out of your mind mm. um you wouldn't dare say to someone who was using a wheelchair i'm not gonna get you a ramp you're going to you know yeah. you're just gonna have to figure it out yourself or you know this is too much of an accommodation not everybody needs a ramp but when it comes to an invisible disability people can often think oh, you don't really need that because I can't see it. I can't see what's going on in your brain. I think you're just asking for too much by asking for this software yeah. on your laptop or for asking for a movement break or for asking for flexible working or, um, you know, lots of different things like that. So I think it's just so important to recognize that just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, and you need to work with the individual and accommodate them in a reasonable way there's you know there is the term reasonable in front of reasonable adjustments for a reason um but i think given it's a gray area it's just so important to as i said make sure you're not viewing it just through a neurotypical lens understand what that individual really really needs and then compare it to if you were talking about a visible disability and i think then you would know in your heart if you were handling it in the right way and I think that's sometimes people tend to skirt around someone in the office that has maybe been difficult anyways, whether neurodiverse or neurotypical. Yeah. And then this 
puts a bit of a grey cloud over it or it muddies the water a little bit, uh, to, to use that phrase. So what I'm hearing then is to say, listen, look at it through the lens of is it a disability or is it behaviour based for people who are just being rude? And then yes. we, you know, we, we've expectations around your behaviours. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I say uh, that's one of the other reasons I encourage people to disclose, because if you have an autistic person who's being really direct and quite, quite blunt, actually, that's probably that's just how they are. Whereas sometimes if you have someone that maybe isn't autistic and is being quite blunt to the point that they are being rude, then that's quite different. And it's very, very difficult to distinguish if people haven't kind of exposed that to you. Um, but I also think there is a real difference between someone being direct and blunt and someone being rude. I think sometimes neurotypical people can be quite sensitive so you can think someone being direct is being rude and I think if they actually challenge themselves they'd realize that they just they're just trying to get to the point they just don't want to waste any time um yeah. and and actually they're probably doing me a favor brilliant and final question and, and I, I thank you for your time so I I work a lot with building trust within teams and high performance teams so if I want to build rapport, connect with someone to build that trust, and I have someone on my team then that just is a straight talker and doesn't want to do the small talk that we neurotypical people might do normally to develop that rapport and trust, what's another way for me to connect with that person? I, th I think it's to find out what they respond well to. So they will, if, if that is the way they are, they will probably just respond really well to you being direct with them um and another thing you can do is engage with them in their focused interests for example um because they will want to talk about some things but it just probably will be in relation to the kind of things that they they like um and a lot of people a lot of autistic people will just view this all quite differently i think and it wouldn't really they often will just be working in a way where they just want to get the job done. So I think as neurotypical people, sometimes we think, or non-autistic people, we think we must build rapport. We're going to have a really great working relationship. And then you've got someone sitting on the other side of the fence thinking, this is a waste of time. I just want to get my job done. <laughs> and if they are, does it really matter that you don't have all of that? So I think it's it's just about figuring out the individual and whether that is something that is is even necessary in the first place. And if it is, like I said, finding the tactics that work for them. Jess, you've been so kind with your time today and all these insights, they've been so invaluable to me and our listeners. And if people were to get in contact with you and learn more about differing minds, how might they do so? Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Um, we'd love people to contact us. So um, our website is differingminds.co.uk and you can get me at jess at differingminds.co.uk. Jess, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organisation.